Father, we've come into your presence, God, on our knees, on the knees of our hearts, O God, knowing that you are rich in mercy and crying out to you for mercy because, Lord, we need your mercy. Lord, we are debtors to your mercy and to your grace. Because, Lord, you are holy, and you are blessed, and you are glorious. You are almighty. You are our sovereign God. You are omnipotent, and beside you there is no other God. You are worthy. You are exalted. You are altogether righteous. You are the Ancient of Days and the Lion of Judah, the Holy One of Israel. You are God, and we need your mercy. Because, Lord, we, we are not you. We cannot approach you. We need you. Lord, we need your mercy to even know that we need to cry for mercy. So, Father, we lay our hearts before you. Lord, we don't come here to give you lip service. God forbid that we would do that, that any one of us would come here thinking that we could say these words and somehow appease you because they're our words. Oh, God, you are our God of mercy, of everlasting hesed, of covenantal love and faithfulness. And we simply come and we cry to you, God, Father, please have mercy on us, restore us, make us whole. God, heal us by your grace and fill us, God, with the presence of your Holy Spirit that we might know you and that we might praise you unto ages of ages. God, we ask that right now you would speak to us by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. Father, speak your truth to us and open our eyes to things that we have not seen, things that we have spoken about that we had no knowledge about. God, open our eyes to your truth and grant us, Father, in, this, in these moments, willing spirits, God, to be molded by that truth. Because, Lord, some of us, uh, all of us, Lord, we need to be molded by you. Um, there's been a lot of molding and kneading in our lives this week uh, with all kinds of voices and all kinds of stresses. And, Lord, we need you to do that work in us more than anything else. So, Father, thank you for hearing our prayer for mercy. Lord, let your good news come now, not only in word, but in power, the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. Glorify your name in the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Amen? Amen? I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. 
Many of you in this room believe that too. We say that, and we know it, and we believe it. Praise the Lord. And yet how easily it can come from our lips. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. When you say that, what do you mean? What are you saying? I was reminded uh, recently about how easily as Christians we can say words, but then when really pressed or even just ask a question, what's the next step here? What do you mean by that? Um, we begin to not have words. Our words begin to fail. Not too long ago, I was in a context where we were talking about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, and yet, what do we mean by that? Why does he do that? And what is accomplished there? I don't know. This Lent, we are exploring the cross of Christ. This week and each week in this Lent, the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at our King. Behold, our King, who is enthroned in the suffering of the cross, exalted and enthroned there. Why? For what does his death accomplish in us? Is it so that we can feel good that our sin is forgiven? What happens when we don't feel good about that? Is our sin still forgiven? For what did Christ come to die? Certainly it is for individual uh, forgiveness and cleansing and praise God that that is part of the cross. And yet, what else is going on there? You see, the cross of Christ is the hinge of history. The cross of Jesus Christ is so much more than our, uh, than our, uh, than our guilt being taken away, though that is so important. That's a piece of it. The cross is the pivot of time. And it is the central act of how God reconciles a people and, in fact, all creation to himself. Behold our king. Today, as we begin this series, I want to turn to a very mysterious passage in Genesis 15. I say mysterious because it really, really is. And my, my, my task today is for us to see that the cross of Christ is not plan A for Christians and plan B for Jews and something that God just kind of thought up when his son got in trouble in the flesh, uh, they're arrested. But that the cross stands forever as that place upon which all redemption 
is bought. So today I want us to see that the cross fulfills God's ancient promise. The cross fulfills God's ancient promise. Would you turn to Genesis 15 uh, with me? Genesis 15 uh, is this, uh, it, it's a very uh, kind of dark, there's darkness in this passage, it's very mysterious. While you're, you're turning there, um, I'll just uh, give you a little recap because we've not been in Genesis for a while. So there's a man named Abram, and Abram and Sarai, they live in Ur of the Chaldeans um, in uh, modern day Iraq in Mesopotamia, and they leave Ur with Terah, Abram's father, and they journey as far as Haran, okay, which is in the ancient Mesopotamian world. Almost, it's not the promised land, not, not Israel yet, but it's in that area. And so they journey and they leave there. And then in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord appears to Abram. Uh, the Lord, notice, it is the Lord's initiative, and the Lord comes to Abram, and he says to Abram, hey, um, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed, because I'm going to do something in you, and you're going to pass it on to the whole rest of the world. And it's a promise of the blessing of a family, of progeny, uh, of land, and of deep and rich blessing by God, being known by God, and then the whole world knowing this God through him. So that sounds pretty good to Abram, and Abram kind of receives that promise. Um, but Abram, he also is a man, his feet are made of clay, and he messes up. Abram is chosen by God, but he's also a sinner in need of God's grace and his mercy. And we see that uh, as Genesis unfolds. In Genesis 13, um, God comes again to Abram and he says, hey, Abram, guess what? My promise to you, it's going to happen and your children are going to be like the dust of the earth. They're going to be everywhere. And Abram must like that, but the thing about it, I forgot to tell you if you don't know the story, Abram's really, really old. He's in his 80s, he's getting into his 90s by this point, and guess what? Sarai, his wife, is barren. They've never had children. And God has come to him and he said, I'm going to give you more children than the dust of the earth. Sounds great. So how are you going to do this, right? Not getting any younger sort of thing. So as time goes on and the years go by, in Genesis 14, we see that Abram, it's this, uh, Genesis 14 is kind of this interesting uh, chapter where Abram, uh, he goes after to save his nephew Lot, who's been kidnapped by some kings and other kings come. It's the, it sounds like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff. It's the battle of the four armies and all of this stuff happens. And then Abram is blessed by this mysterious figure called Melchizedek, who is a priest of God most high. He's also a king, and he blesses Abram just as the Lord God has blessed him. But then there's this little altercation between Abram and the king of Sodom. It's a little bit ominous, and that's where we pick up. And so, hear the word. After these things, this war, this altercation with the king of Sodom, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, 
O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So another huge promise, right? So they're outside. It's nighttime. Look up, Abram. Your offspring coming from your own body, coming from your own family. It's going to be more than that. Whoa. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Told you it was mysterious and kind of weird and dark. It's going to get darker. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. It's the same deep sleep that falls on Adam when God's going to pull the rib out of him to make Eve. Same word, deep sleep. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Abram is afraid. And quite honestly, I think he's just weary. God has come. He knows it. God has given him a promise. He's received it. And yet, the promise has not yet come in full. And Abram's scared. And he's just kind of tired. 
After these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So, so this account begins, it runs over two days, it begins at night. The Lord comes to Abram. Notice, who is initiating this contact? It's the Lord. And there's this phrase here that the word of the Lord came to Abram. First time it's used in all of Scripture. It's used twice in this passage. It's not used a lot in Genesis, but it means a prophetic utterance. The Lord comes and he's going to speak to his servant in a way that the servant cannot miss it. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he says, fear not, Abram. Don't be afraid. Don't you love that? God already knows before we cry to him. And he comes to Abram and he says, don't be afraid, fear not, for I am your shield. I am your protector. I am the one who will stand guard over you. I am all that you need. I am your protector, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He, the Lord comes to Abram in his weariness, in his fear, and he says to him, listen, don't be afraid because I've got you. I'm protecting you, and I'm going to provide for you more than you can understand. Now, at this point in time, Abram, he's a very rich man. He's got flocks. He's got herds. Uh, he has worldly wealth, but he doesn't have a son, and he doesn't have a place that he owns where he can lay his head. He's a wanderer, and he doesn't have children. And the Lord has already given him this promise, but he's waiting. He's in between. He's in the in-between time from the promise given to the promise fulfilled. Anybody live there? We live there, don't we? So often we are in between this time of, of the promise of life that is, that is given. Life has been given. The word of the Lord has come, and we have trusted him, and we follow him, and not yet has all the promises reached their fulfillment. Not yet is our struggle with sin over. Not yet can we say that we live life truly without fear. We are susceptible, we are human. We live, like Abram, in the in-between time of the promise given and the promise rushing in in full effect. So the Lord initiates, this pattern happens twice, the Lord initiates and gives a promise. And then look what Abram says. Abram says, O Lord God, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Behold, he goes on, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household is going to be my heir. Abram has already demonstrated that he believes God. God comes to him, and he says, leave your father's house and go with me. Pack up Sarai and all that you have, and go with me, and I'll tell you when to stop. And he did that. Can you imagine him, 80 years old? Come on, honey. <laughs> Pack up the camel. Here we go. And he goes as far as he can to Shechem in the Holy Land. And God says, stop. See all this? 
It'll be yours. The point is, Abram has already acted with great faith. Faith in what God has said. Faith in what God has promised him. And yet even now, as God comes to him and speaks a word to him, don't fear, I'm your protector. I will take care of you. I will fulfill it. And he is filled with questions. And his questioning doesn't come from a place of unbelief. His questioning comes from a place of reasoning with the God who is. Look what he calls him. O Lord God. Literally, that means sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. It's rare in Genesis. Sovereign Lord, you own all things. And I am your servant. And you know that. But God, I'm troubled here. I'm waiting for a sign here, God. I know your word is true, but help me. Help me. And so the Lord acts. Verse 5. The Lord brings him outside. Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. And as Abram looks up, he crosses a line. All of the sudden, as Abram looks up, he shifts from mustering up the courage to trust in his own faith in a God who has spoken to simply resting in the trustworthy truth that that God has spoken. There's a difference. All of a sudden, he looks up and it clicks. I trust you, God. I just trust you. You see, what happens there, uh, he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. You see, faith, belief, or trust is the confident trusting in the word and action of God. Abram crossed a line and he relaxed into a relationship of trust. Do you know what that, that's what faith is? It's trusting God in His Word and just relaxing into that trust because you know that God will not fail you. You know that His promises are true. You see, faith is viewed here not merely as the root of all true obedience to the will of God, but as embracing and steadfastly resting upon him. Faith begins not with a maddening flurry of obedience. Faith begins with a simple resting in what God has said is true. And then go obey it.
faith is the act by which Abram goes out from himself and relies upon God for righteousness and grace and blessing. You know, the Apostle Paul writes about this. It's quoted four times in the New Testament, this verse, 15.6, how Abram believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness, that, that God, that this line is crossed and all of a sudden, Abram is filled with righteousness because he trusts in the unchanging, trustworthy word of God. In Romans chapter 4, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes this of Abraham. He says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. This, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's faith. Being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Do you see that when we come to the place when we are fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised, that's different than fully convinced that I'm going to muster up the strength and the courage to try to believe God at his word? Do you see how that's different? Do you see how that's different? Hello? Okay, I'm not sure if you see how that's different. Being fully convinced that God is able to do what he had promised is simply trusting in God's work. Abram looks up and he is overwhelmed with the reality, God, you are sovereign. You made all that you can do what you said. And I'm just going to rest there. I'm not going to try to calculate it. I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm not going to try to walk in front of you. I'm not going to try to do all this. You know what? But the irony is, he totally does all that. Uh, If we were to keep reading in the next chapter, he totally tries to force the promise. He talks to Sarai, and Sarai's like, hey, babe, it's not happening. Here's Hagar. Here's my servant. Maybe God wants to do it that way. So he tries to force the promise. You see, the thing about Abram, he is righteous in God's sight because of his faith. He's still a sinner. He's still a man with feet of clay. He still is going to mess up. And yet he trusts in God's unfailing love for him. Look at verse 7. Right after this happens, he says to him, the, the word of the Lord comes again. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, his homeland, to give you this land to possess. But, do you, ever, do you ever say but to God? Now, twice, the Lord has come to Abram, and he said, listen, this is what's going to happen. And Abram goes, okay, God, but, but, it's hard to trust sometimes. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I'm trusting you, Lord. I'm even relaxed into that, that, that simple, childlike trust. But God, you know what? <laughs> it would just be great if you'd just give me something. Give me a sign. And so God, in his grace, does. All the rest of this passage, this mysterious passage, it is the enactment of an ancient covenant, covenantal ceremony. 
It is the action that happens when two parties come together, a king and a vassal, or, uh, or two kings, they come together, and they're going to have this treaty, they're going to have this covenant, they're going to have this new relationship, and they want to seal it in blood, because if you seal it in blood, it is binding. And so what happens is, God, because He knows that His servant is weary, He knows that He's trusting Him, and yet He just is weary and He needs a sign And so God says, give me a cow, give me a ram, and give me a female sheep and two birds. And he does. And what happens here, these instructions, it's an ancient covenantal ceremony. And so Abram, he splits the cow, cuts it in half, right through the middle, and he pushes the carcass in two pieces on each side. And he splits the female goat And he puts the carcass on two sides. And he splits the ram. And he puts the carcass on two sides. And he kills the birds and puts them on each side. There's a gory mess in between. God wants Abram to prepare for something that has not yet happened. But it will seal his word. As we read, we see that the birds come and Abram gets them off of that. They're sitting in the sun uh, throughout the day. So God, the night before, showed him the stars. It's the next day. He prepares this sacrificial covenant-making ceremony. Everything's ready. Notice that God doesn't say anything to Abram about walking through the center. Never happens. He prepares it, and he lets it lay. And then a deep sleep comes. And then dreadful darkness comes. That's the coming of the Lord. Dreadful, deep darkness. The Lord is present. And Abram, as he is off to the side, there appears to him a smoking pot and a, and a torch with a flame. These, this smoking, this, this fire and this smoke is representative. It signals the presence of God. And through the blood and the gore of that covenant ceremony that is literally cut, it means to cut a covenant, is literally when in the Bible it talks about making an agreement, it's to cut a covenant. It's because of this. It is the flame and the smoke that goes through the blood. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? It means that when God, His presence, goes through the pieces of this covenant, it means that God is saying, let what happened to these animals happen to me if I do not fulfill the word that I have spoken. It's called a self-maledictory oath. And when two people, a king and another king, would lock their arms and they'd walk through all the guts and the gore, they would be saying the same thing. Let this happen to me if I let you down. Let this happen to me if I don't do what I said. And the two partners would be bound together. But here's the deal. That's not all that God is saying. You know where the gospel is here? 
God is not only saying, let this happen to me if I don't fulfill my part of the word. Where's Abram? He's watching this. What the Lord God Almighty is doing as he goes through these pieces is let this happen to me if you don't fulfill you're part of this covenant. Let this happen to me if you let me down. Let this happen to me if you don't act righteously. Because you know what? Nobody can do that. Abram couldn't do it. Isaac and Jacob couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. He couldn't fulfill the covenant. He couldn't be holy enough to be in the presence of a holy God. Joshua couldn't do it. Samuel couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. None of the people of the Old Testament could ever fulfill the righteous requirements of the covenant of God. And yet the proof of God's amazing love is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Behold our King. You see, friends, the cross is the fulfillment of what God promised in Genesis 15. Let me be torn in two so that you are accepted and forgiven even though you've let me down, even though you can't fulfill my law. You know, the amazing grace of the cross proclaims that God acts for our salvation and deliverance. It's great that sometimes we feel light and that our sins are forgiven. I mean, that's awesome. That's all part of it. But do you see? It's on the cross that God fulfills His Word. And just as Abraham was looking for a concrete, tangible proof of God's faithfulness. God cuts this covenant. Cut these animals. Cut them. And remember, Abraham, remember what I have done. I walked through that. He gives them a tangible sign. And guess what? In the same way, when we need a tangible sign of God's faithfulness to cleanse, to restore, to forgive, that you're accepted by Him even in the stupid stuff that we do, even in our sinfulness, that in Christ you are forgiven and accepted as a son, as a daughter, as an heir to the glory of Christ. If you need that tangible sign, and we do, you look at the cross. Because it is at the cross that we see that God keeps His word. When you're in that in-between place, when you fear that your faith will fail or your love is cold, you look at the cross. Because the cross speaks. And it reminds us that God keeps His word. There's a line There's a line that we must cross. We must trust to be saved. 
Abram trusted God and God credited it to him as righteous. He, he made him righteous on account of his simple trust. There's a line that we must cross in order to experience the righteousness and peace that is promised in the cross. And so where are you? Are you trusting in your ability to trust? Or are you simply looking up? Confident that His promise cannot fail. Let's pray. Father, from the very beginning, your plan, which is embedded all throughout the scriptures, Lord, was to save us through the enthronement of our King on a cross of wood. Father, that is love that is so amazing and divine that it demands all of us, demands our all. But first, Lord, before we can even try to give you our all, we, we we just simply have to see that it's true. Lord, some of us are just, we're just really weary, we're worn. Life's hard, just is. And Lord, we, we know that you are good and faithful and we say that you died on the cross for my sins. And you did. And yet there's so much to that. And there's so much more. And we find, Lord, that the more that we dig down, you're deeper still. And the the wider we go, the wider you are still. There is nowhere that we can escape you. And there is no way that we can extend past everything that you've provided for our salvation. Your word is true. And you've acted in ways that solidify that truth. We just need to look up. And to be reminded that right now, right where we live, right here, you're the God who keeps your promises. You hold us. You adopt us. You forgive us. You ransom and you heal us deep in our soul. You do that work that we cannot do by ourselves. You set us in families. You bring us together in the family of your people, the body of Christ. You keep your promise. And the cross speaks that. 
Father, we praise you that, um, that you are a promise-keeping kind of God. Lord, may we rest in your work, knowing that it is by your work that we are delivered. Lord, as we prepare to offer our, our best to you, Lord, um, I, I, I pray that the tokens that we will put in these plates, that they express a depth of trust. Lord, we're not trying to pay you off, but Lord, you've displayed your glorious grace and we love you and we want to give our best to you. And so we do. But Lord, even more than that, as we offer ourselves at this table, this table where we see the, the way that Christ was torn in two in fulfillment of your promise for us. I pray that you would meet us here in this place. Meet us, Lord, again, not only in your word, but also in this sacrament. That we would see you in the breaking of the bread. <laughs> Lord Jesus, may we see you there. And may we be nourished and walk out of here as agents of grace in this world. God, we give you praise. Help us to continue to respond to you, Lord, now in Jesus' name. Amen.